Section 16. India and Devotees. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. Nowhere has the army shown its marvelous power to unite men of all races and classes so rapidly and completely as in India. With its headquarters in Simla, and its leader, formerly a magistrate under the Indian government, looked upon almost as a felon and imprisoned when he first began leading open-air meetings in Bombay, but now honored by the highest both of British and Indian rulers, and by the lowest of its outcasts equally, the army has become the fully recognized friend of governors and governed alike. When the general decided upon issuing a weekly paper called The War Cry, it was to be, as nearly as possible, the Salvation Army in print, and Mr. Booth Tucker, then an Indian official, at once got the idea from the copy he read that such a force as it described was exactly what was wanted in that country a set of Christians determined to fight for the establishment of Christ's kingdom by every method love could devise, but loving especially the poorest and weakest, and proving their love by working continually amongst them. After visiting England to see the army and its leaders for himself, he had no hesitation in abandoning his government appointment and giving himself up for life to this war. Such was the devotion of our officers, and especially of the first Indians they won, that the general, far from having to urge them forward, had rather to check the tendency needlessly to sacrifice health and life. He gladly gave, at later dates, two of his own daughters to the work and, perfectly informed by his own repeated visits to the country, and by what he learnt from the actualities of the war, he was the better able to correct mistakes, and so to utilize to the uttermost the forces that were raised in various parts of the vast peninsula. Nobody would hesitate to acknowledge how much his counsels helped to prevent an excessive zeal from sacrificing precious lives. He divided the country into six territories, each under a separate commander, realizing that India could not be treated as one country, but that its diverse people must be dealt with according to their several needs, and that, unless those using different languages were trained to act independently enough of each other, they could never form strong enough forces to cope with the vast enterprises required but the following account written to his children of his first visit to the country gives a photographic view both of his own activities and successes and of the attitude of the high and mighty generally towards him at that remote date he writes from benares january thirteenth eighteen ninety two just ten years after our beginning in india benares january thirteenth eighteen ninety two my dear children, Wednesday and Thursday, 6th and 7th, were consumed in traveling to Calcutta, and, all things considered, I got through the journey very well. Nevertheless, I was exceedingly weary on being roused at 5 o'clock to prepare for the arrival. 
It was early, 5.35 a.m., and Colonel Ajit Singh did not expect any reception beyond that of our own officers. To our surprise, however, we found the platform crowded with our own enthusiastic little party, who raised some music from a scratch band, some native Christians, and a very large number of Hindu gentlemen. I was taken by surprise, and, unaware of the extent of the demonstration, allowed them to leave by only shaking hands. Interview upon interview followed during the morning, but in the afternoon I was down for the town hall meeting. I scarcely ever remember in my life feeling more thoroughly weary than on that day. Three times I lay down to try to sleep, and each time failed to get a wink, and my brain was benumbed and bewildered when I entered that immense building and was called upon by General Merrill, the American consul who presided, to address that crowd. I don't know whether Commissioner Booth Tucker ever had a meeting in the town hall. It is a long building, 120 feet long, with the most clumsy pillars down the sides, shutting out almost the side seats from view. There was quite as large an audience as I expected, although it was not what it might have been. There were a few Europeans present and a few native Christians, and the remainder were composed of the non-Christian element. Amongst others who interviewed me during the day, or were introduced to me before the meeting, was the successor to Chunder Singh, and the two most prominent teachers of the Brahmo Samaj, and a number of other leading people. On the platform was the judge of the Supreme Court and vice-chancellor of the university, and one of the few Hindus who are strict observers of every principle and usage of their sect. Near to me was the Nawal Abdul Lutif, Mohammedan, and just behind me was a boy of about fourteen, a son and heir of a Maharaja, whose father had intended to have been at the meeting, but was prevented and so sent his son, a bright-eyed youth who paid every attention to what was said. General Merrill had consented to preside at the last moment, being induced to do so very largely from the fact that every one of the English of any note had refused. Bombay, January 16th. I broke off at the beginning of my Calcutta campaign as above, not having had a moment's space to resume. Never had I such a crush of engagements before, and it was really all I could possibly do to keep pace with them, and that I only did to some extent in a poorish way. The detail of them I must leave to another day. I may say, however, that Calcutta in interest exceeded anything I have seen since I left England. From the rush of welcome at the railway station at six in the morning, to the pack who came to say farewell, in which the papers say there were 3,000 people. It was one series of surprises. Although the town hall meeting was stiff, and the Europeans were conspicuous by their absence, still there was sufficient indication of the high esteem in which the army was held in general, and myself in particular, to make it a matter of great interest and encouragement. Of the welcomes that followed from individuals of note, 
such as Mr. Banerjee and Mr. Bowes, representing the Bahamo Samaj, and the successor of Chudarasing, Mr. Chukvereti, the lay reader of the Yogal Samaj. His Highness the Maharaja Sir Jatandaro Mahun of Tranjore, one of the most princely men of the city. The Nawab Abdul Latif, the most distinguished leader of the Mohammedans, etc. And of the several missionaries who came up, all was really complimentary and respectful, nay, affectionate. Then there were the crowds, perhaps the greatest in the Emerald Theatre, in which there must have been nearly 3,000 people, inside and out, listening through the doorways. It was certainly the most remarkable audience I ever addressed, exclusively native. I only saw one white face in the crowd beyond our own people. Nothing more hearty could have been conceived. Then came meeting upon meeting, but the circus on Sunday night outdid almost anything, in some respects that I have ever witnessed in my life. It came upon me quite by surprise. The hour fixed was the same as the churches, and it had been predicted that we should not get an audience. It was right away outside the city, in a park in the swellest part of the suburbs. Consequently, it was not at all attractive to the native, who doesn't like to get outside his own quarter. The Emerald Theatre had been a great success because it was in the midst of his quarter. The Europeans would not come there, and now it was fair to assume that the native would not come to the European centre. As to any attendance of English people, that was hardly to be expected. They had cold-shouldered me at the town hall. The lieutenant governor had even refused to see one of our officers when she called, although he had the reputation of being a Christian man. The viceroy had been civil to me. He could not have been otherwise. In fact, he verged on friendliness before we parted. But that was all. His military secretary had been as stiff as military etiquette could possibly make him. There seemed to be, therefore, nothing much to expect as an audience from them. Then I was tired out. A more wearying morning and afternoon I had seldom experienced, and I bargained in my own mind, and even mentioned it to Ajit Singh, that if there was not much of an audience, I should leave them to bear the brunt of the burden. As we drove up, the appearance of things seemed to confirm my anticipations. Everything was silent. They had been afraid of the roaring of the wild beast disturbing the meetings but there was not a growl to be heard, nor a carriage to be seen, nor even a pedestrian. It is true we were at the back part of the circus. Ho came to meet us, however, at the gates, and when asked about the audience very coolly announced, to our amazement, that they were full. Without delay, therefore, I mounted the platform, and the sight that met me certainly was sufficiently surprising to be actually bewildering. They say the place seated 3,500. It appeared to be full. It was a simple circle with a ring set in the center. At one end was a little platform seating myself and my staff. Opposite me was the entrance for the horses, which was packed by the crowd. 
while the remaining space, on circle upon circle, tier upon tier, the audience was to be seen. On the right hand we had row after row of queen soldiers in their red jackets, lower down the Eurasian and middle-class Europeans, with a few natives. In the center we had a very fair proportion of the elite of Calcutta. There was the lieutenant governor, the chief commissioner of police, the councils of America and two or three other countries, some great native swells, ladies bespangled with jewelry and finery, while on the left was one mass of dark faces reaching right up to the canvas sky. It was the most picturesque audience I ever addressed, to say the least of it. Our singing of graces flowing like a river was very weak. Still, everybody listened, nobody more so than the swell Europeans. The solo on Calvary was sung with good effect, and then I rose to do my best. The opportunity put new life into me. I was announced to speak on the religion of humanity, but this did not seem to me to be the hour for argument of any description. There was no time for dissertation. I felt I must have something that went straight to the point. I had been talking to these Brahma Samaj and other people upon social work, alluring them on afterwards by indirect arguments long enough. Now I felt that I must go as straight to the point as it was possible to do. So I took what must I do with Jesus and made it fit into the religion of humanity as best I could. I never hit out straighter in my life and was never listened to with more breathless attention, except for the few wretched natives in the top seats who would go out, I guessed, because they did not know the language, and came perhaps expecting I should be translated, and after sitting an hour felt that was enough. However, they soon cleared out, the audience taking no notice of the process. Once done, however, a general movement took place. A prayer meeting was impossible. We retired feeling that a victory had been gained so far. I cannot stop here to speak of the meetings at which the Brachazamaj presented me with an address of welcome the next day. All I know is that nothing surprised me more than to hear some of the priests and laymen declare that they had gone with me in every word I had said the night before. Other meetings followed interviews, visits to the houses of leading natives, and with blessings without stint poured upon my head, and handshaking that almost threatened to lame me. The train tore me away from the packed platform, and I left Calcutta with unfeigned regret. I stayed a night at Benares, and had the town hall crowded with a leading Hindu in the chair. Quiet meeting, Landed here, Bombay, six this morning with a hearty welcome, and I think with the promise of good meetings, although anything equal to Calcutta is not to be expected, and the news of the death of the prince has come in our way, the news of which we have only just received. This will be my last letter, I presume, and I send it with, as ever, my undiminished affection to you all. For the General... J.C.R., written in a terrible haste. 
This was immediately followed by the following final days. Saturday, noon, interview with the governor. 5 p.m., interview with Native Christian Committee. 5.30 p.m., welcome in Pandal, a large temporary structure capable of holding people, no seating being needed. Sunday, 10.30 a.m., meeting in Pandal. 3 p.m., interview with Indian Judge. 6 p.m., meeting in Pandal. Monday, 10 a.m., visit to our institutions. 3 p.m., visit to General Assembly Institute. 5.30 p.m., drawing room meeting. 8.45 p.m., meeting of gentlemen in town hall. The Bombay program further included. Tuesday, 7 a.m., visit to the leper asylum. Midday, visit to the Gekwar of Barada. 3 p.m., meeting in a pandal. Evening, meeting with native Christians. Wednesday, 8 a.m., an assembly at the Institute. 8.15 a.m., interview with a solicitor. 8.30 a.m., interview with the Parsi engineer. 9.30 a.m., interview with Pressman, who took him to see the hospital for animals. 2 p.m., interview with gentlemen, who took him to see the Victoria Jubilee Technical Institute. 4.30 p.m., reception at Mr. Jemseche Tatas. 5.30 p.m., meeting in the Pandal. 9 p.m., lecture in the Framji Kowazache Institute to Indian Gentlemen. Thursday, 8.30 a.m., officers' meeting. 3.45 p.m., officers' meeting. 4.30 p.m., farewell procession. 5.30 p.m., farewell meeting in Pandal. Friday, 8 a.m., staff council. 5 p.m. reception at Mr. Kawasaji Janharji. This was, however, abandoned on account of Prince Albert Victor's death. Saturday sailed for Europe. Remembering that the general was already nearly 63 years old, such programs in India might well fatigue him. But these were easy days, compared with many country ones of this journey, during which he traversed Ceylon, visited South India, spoke to some 8,000 Syrian Christians, and calling at Madras and Calcutta, went on to the Punjab and Gujarat. His final days in Bombay were, as we have seen, clouded by a bereavement of the royal house. But to his telegram to the Prince and Princess of Wales, now King George and Queen Mary, he got the cabled reply. Their Royal Highnesses, thanks for your prayers and sympathy. It had thus already been seen that the General's plans for India were answering their purpose. It became possible first to march large parties through various tracts of country, so impressing thousands in a few days more than the isolated labors of the best individuals could have done in the course of years and then it came to learn later from officers placed amongst them. All this, the general knew, could not mean all that it would have meant amongst peoples who understood more perfectly our teachings. But he saw no reason for not making the most of such incidents. Why not abandon, so far as such people were concerned, our system elsewhere, and recognize them as adherents? 
leaving them to learn after from officers placed amongst them all that was necessary for them to become salvation soldiers. By this plan, we avoided any watering down of our teachings or requirements. And yet those who were not fit to be enrolled in our ranks were able, so far as they chose, to abandon idolatry and every evil practice to get the advantages of Christian schooling for their children and generally to improve themselves under our influence. Famines, epidemics of cholera and plague, and other general calamities really helped us to increase our influence in various districts. We gathered many orphans and abandoned children and brought them up as our own whilst over wide tracts of country the people learnt to look upon us as a family of brothers born for adversity, whose help could be relied upon not merely with regard to heavenly, but to earthly things. The barriers of caste, which bind Indians to treat each other to so large an extent as if they were enemies, are naturally a constant and serious hindrance to us especially as most of our people naturally belong to the lower castes, or are even outcasts. And our plan of organization has helped us wonderfully in this matter. For the villager of Gazarat, or Ceylon, who might be very greatly hampered amongst his own natural surroundings, may be placed in an infinitely better position in some other part of the country. Indians are marvelously quick at learning languages, so we need seldom hesitate about their usefulness in any new appointment on account of differences of language. And thus, it has come about that we have already, after some thirty years' work, nearly two thousand Indian officers, as absolutely devoted to the service of Christ as any of their comrades of any other land and the forces under their command have shown already that they can deal effectively with peoples utterly inaccessible to the ordinary Europeans. The Behils, when we first went amongst them, were all armed with bows and arrows, living entirely by the chase, and so terrified at any sign of officialism that our officers had to avoid taking a scrap of paper with them when visiting their districts. But we have now many Bahil villages entirely under our teaching, and quite a number of Bahil officers who have learnt to read their own language and to lead their countrymen as fully to follow Christ as they do themselves. So many of our people in Gujarat were weavers that one officer set himself especially to the task of improving their loom. He was soon able to make one with which they could double their daily product. The making of these looms created a new industry also, so that we have been able thus to help many. In India, we have also commenced in three of our territories medical work, making it, after first cost of buildings, equipment, and staff, largely self-supporting, as we found that the people really appreciated help more for which they were called upon to make ever so small a return. In the same way, respecting all our work, the general has always urged the importance of applying as far as possible our general rule of self-support. For though the people may have very little to give, 
the very least they can do helps to protect us from the prejudice created by the term rice Christians, applied to those who are believed to have made professions of Christianity for the sake of the food they hope to receive. And now the government, having seen the practical effect of our work, is beginning to give us opportunities such as we never had before. The Doms, a tribe systematically trained to live by thieving, were placed under our special care, and the result was such as to lead to our having other unmanageables likewise given over to us. In fact, we are barely now beginning to reap in India what in twenty-eight arduous years had been sown. Does someone ask, where does the general's own hand appear in much of this? Is it not all rather due to his having from the beginning had so able a helper, acquainted with the languages and mental habits of the country, and other exceptionally able officers both here and there? Even if it were so, I should ask how all these people of ability placed themselves so absolutely at the general's disposal as to wish to spend all their lives under his direction, in the greatest poverty in that faraway land. And I should inquire further how it came to pass that British, French, American, Swedish, Swiss, Dutch, and others could be got to submit not only to work in union under the same iron regulations, but often under the leadership of women, and often under that of Indian staff officers. Who else but General Booth has ever attempted to place under command of a woman a missionary work, carried on largely by men over a territory larger and more populous than that of the United Kingdom? Yet, undoubtedly, nothing has more contributed to the success of our work in a country where women have been so largely repressed, as the fact that the army has thus demonstrated its confidence in God's power to lift up the weakest to the uttermost degree. Nobody who reflects on these things will dispute that whatever the army has done for India has been due most of all to its first general. And so surely as the knowledge of what is already done grows, shall we be allowed to do more and more to show India what Christ really desires, and so to capture it for him. In connection with all our Indian work, one vastly important part of the General's work comes ever before us, whether we think of Commissioner Booth Tucker or of one of his humblest native helpers. Commonly enough in recent times, the general was honored because he had won, from the path of vice to that of virtue, some notorious sinner. But did he not even more remarkably earn the general gratitude by changing the comparatively helpless and uninfluential, though well-meaning, into enterprising and widely useful leaders in good work? How many millions of people he has taught or urged to sing, where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That grand verse was well known in this country, and widely sung, of course, long before he was born, 
but alas how many sing it even now with the understanding how many thousands of choice spirits first learnt under the general's direction to look fairly at the immensity of their responsibility to god as they sang that and similar verses and how many only found out as ever-widening responsibilities were pressed upon them how great their all really could become the humble laborer without any great speaking ability and often involved in a struggle to earn the barest livelihood for himself and family was taught how to share in seeking the salvation of men today he has become a well-known benefactor in one way or another to thousands of his fellow townsmen and his children in the far east or west are helping to realize his grandest thoughts of winning the whole world for god this result would never have come about simply by the reading and singing of the most beautiful words but the man who was first of all made responsible perhaps only for the keeping of a hall door learned with astonishing rapidity how much our common life could accomplish for god and went on expanding in thought and purpose as his responsibilities were increased until he became not merely a local leader in every form of salvationist effort but a foreman or tradesman exercising a widespread influence amongst his fellow townsmen for all that is good and urging thousands of a younger generation forward in every way to the glory of god in the advancement of their country such development when it comes to be applied say to an educated lady produces one of those wise mothers of mankind whose practical counsels and help are being sought by the greatest cities in these days when men have found out what largeness of both heart and understanding are often to be found under a salvation army bonnet end of section 16 recording by tom hirsch